You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Reading by Mark Thornton, Miranda, New Zealand. The Slave Ship from Space. At the top of their curving passage, a doorway led them into a spacious room hung with soft, finely woven tapestries with a metallic luster and furnished with deep nap rugs and luxurious chairs and divans. Through this room, the intangible threads of the alien will directed them, on, into a wide vaulted alcove about one-third its size. There, the strange clutch on them relaxed, and they looked about, at first apprehensively, then, with growing boldness and curiosity. "'This is the control room!' exclaimed Clee suddenly. And after a moment, Jim agreed with him. It was the simplicity of the controls which had prevented them from recognizing it at first. Against the left wall was a great table with a tilted top, bearing in its center a raised and hooded eyepiece, giving a view with a large enclosed black box. On each side were several rows of small shiny metallic levers and what they took to be instrument dials, round cup-shaped depressions with pointers free to move across dials lined with disorderly and meaningless convolutions. For the full length of the middle wall, straight ahead, was a broad table of some jet-black, polished material, and on it was a large array of instruments and apparatus, all unfamiliar to them. Against the draperies of the wall to their right was one large cushioned chair, simple and beautiful in its lines. No living person or thing could be discerned in either the main room or the alcove. For several minutes, the two men walked all about, examining everything they saw with curiosity and interest, and then Clee discovered a peculiar thing. His watch dial, glowing very brightly now, would perceptibly increase in brilliance every time he neared the great chair. With sudden inspiration, he took out his package of tobacco and held it in the line his watch made with the chair, and he found that his watch stopped glowing. He tried it again from another angle, and the result was the same. From that chair came the electrical disturbance that was making his watch dial glow yet nowhere near the chair was any bit of electrical apparatus to be seen. What he did see in the chair, though, almost caused his heart to stop beating. The cushions of the seat, compressed before, began to puff out to full volume, as if someone had just risen from them, and then, faintly but sharply outlined in the long nap rug in front, appeared the print of a human shoe. "'A man!' breathed Clee. "'A human being!' The two men stood frozen in their tracks. Clee's arm, with the package of tobacco in his hand, was still outstretched towards the great chair, but now the dial of his watch was glowing brightly again. Something within caused him, in spite of his terror, to move the package between the watch and the space above the footprint on the rug. The glowing stopped. The man, devil, whatever it was that made the print, was the source of the strange excitation. This took but a second. The interval before another shoe print formed in the rug in their direction. Jim gasped something unintelligible and started to back away, but no sooner did Partridge start to follow suit than a compulsion to stand still came over them. Caught where they were, unable to move, they saw the shoe prints come towards them. Slowly, step by step, twelve inches apart, they came and did not stop until they were only four or five feet away. 
It'll jump him if we get the chance, hissed Jim, never taking his eyes off the prince. Yes, came the answer, but Cleese's further words were cut off in the making of an added compulsion to keep them quiet. Were their words understood? The two men were locked speechless where they stood, and by some creature with a human footprint whom they could not see. The touch of firm flesh came out of the nothingness of space about them, to poke and pry all over their bodies. Anger began to take the place of their fear, as for some time, impotent of resistance, they had to submit to the examination given them. They were prodded and felt like dogs at a show. Their breathing and heart action were carefully listened to. Their mouths were opened and their teeth inspected, as if they were horses offered for sale. Both men were inwardly fuming. Dogs! shouted Clee in his thoughts. Treating us like dogs, to see how healthy we are. Does he want us for slaves? At last the examination came to a stop and they saw the shoe-prints in the rug go over to the black table and remain there, heels towards them, while various pieces of apparatus were invisibly moved across the table-top. For a moment the compelling will did not seem to Clee to be constraining him as much as it had, and he began to wonder if he might not have a little control over his body again. Tentatively he tried to break through the oppressing blanket of foreign will. His arms and legs moved a little. He succeeded! He caught Jim's eye and showed him. He thrilled all over at his discovery, and his will to move measurably increased with his growing confidence that he could. The toes of the prince were still turned away. He was going to try and get the man or monster who was making them. He gestured to Jim, and with a great effort took a step in the invisible man's direction. A thrill of gladness helped him on, for Jim was following suit. Again and again, with greatest mental effort, they made steps towards the footprints, which, remaining side by side and motionless, gave them increasing hope of stealing up unobserved. When they were only three feet away, Clee motioned to Jim, and with a tremendous effort of will, they jumped at the space where their enemy should be. They hit him hard and bore him heavily to the floor. By the feel, he was a man such as they. Clee's blood leapt with the lust for revenge, and blanking his mind against strong urges to cease his attack, he rained savage blows at the place he was holding. But almost at once they had evidence that their opponent was not such a man as they. A terrific pain stabbed suddenly through them, and they doubled up on the floor, writhing in agony. It was as if every nerve in their bodies had turned into a white-hot wire, and it was searing through their flesh. Again and again came the terrible stabs of pain, and their source seemed to be the mysterious lumps in the back of their necks. At last they ceased coming, and Jim and Clee stretched out on the floor, all but unconscious from the terrific shocks of fiery agony. They were completely helpless. Further thoughts of resistance were unthinkable, but they were not left lying long. There came a telepathic compulsion to stand up and they found themselves obeying in spite of the shrieking protest of their every nerve. Twitching, stumbling, they were made to do servile things, to kneel on the floor, to get up again, turn round and round, bow low, then stretch backwards. 
and out of the air around them came shocking blows which landed on their faces, necks, and chests, feet which kicked out at their shins, and they had to stand there and take it, helpless to resist. Then Clee, as the nearer of the two men, was pushed over to the work table, where an oval headpiece of finely woven wire was fitted over his head. Another very large one, standing next to it, and connected to it by wires which led to a small instrument panel nearby, lifted into the air until it must have settled about the head of the persecutor. A dial on the panel turned slowly, and gradually the helmet, resting in the air, dissolved into nothingness before their eyes. A slight nausea swept over Clee as it did so, and in the midst of it he felt a series of sharp, staccato thoughts, thoughts which did not seem to be composed of words, and yet were clear and intelligible. Fool of a fool! crackled in his brain with almost a physical effort. Do you think to resist Zantra? Do you think with your subhuman minds to overcome one of the Tillas, masters of the universe? Close you were to death, and death indeed would have come had I not other plans for you. Know that henceforth you and your companion are my slaves. You will jump at my slightest will. Serve me as best you can with such intelligence as you may possess. For faithful, willing service, you shall have food and clothing and a portion of leisure. Disobedience and tardiness will bring you the pain you have already tasted. Revolt or the attempt to escape. Death, but only after torture such as you have never known. I shall never repeat this mode of communication. It is as physically nauseating to me as to you. And you may never expect to see me, though I can always see you. By vibrational means, I have given you the universal atomic rhythm of all Tillian slaves. And although in that state your fellow slaves will be visible to you, I, your master, will not. You will now return to your place of confinement. After you have recovered, you will be taken in hand by your fellow slaves and shown your duties. And if your instinct for self-preservation is only one-tenth normal, you will never again be such a stupid sub-animal fool as to attempt to resist Zantra, to fly in the face of the inevitable. The sharp staccato voice in Cleese's brain stopped. His nausea began to leave him. His helmet was removed. And had he been looking, he might have seen the other one slowly materialise on the table. The ordeal was over just in time, for the last remnants of his strength were giving out, as was Jim's. The two earthmen slumped down and would have fallen but for the telepathic will, stronger than theirs, that forced them erect again. There came a very strong compulsion to return to their cell, and bruised, stumbling, their nerves still afire from the strange stabbing pains, they made their way back. They fell to the floor and passed into unconsciousness, beaten, subdued, slaves. After a long blank interval, a distinct thought crossed Clee's mind. It was in heaven, and an angel voice had spoken. There it was again. Cool hands were stroking his wrists and forehead. He opened his eyes and looked, but seeing no one, closed them again. The voice returned and two of the words which kept repeating were somehow familiar. So sorry, so sorry. The voice was low and cool and feminine, and someone was bathing his 
battered head. He rolled over and got up onto one elbow. He still could see no one. The voice said, Oh, I'm glad you're better. I thought you'd never come to. Mechanically, Clee asked, Who are you? Vivian Gray, came the quick answer. From Boston, and you? Clee did not answer, but started to lie back again. Things were all wrong. He couldn't even see anyone. He'd go back to sleep and wake up some other time. But the voice wouldn't let him. Oh, you must listen, it said. I haven't much time. Where are you? he asked. Why, right here, came the surprised answer. Can't you see me? No, answered Clee, still not himself. He added categorically, I can see Jim, I can see the door, I can see my hands, but I can't see you. Oh, then it must be true. Sandra told me he was going to make you one of his common slaves, but I hoped, I hoped. This didn't mean much to Clee, but with the words came memory of all that had happened, and with sudden concern he crept over to where Jim was lying to see how he was. He found him blinking and stirring, aroused by the voices. Quickly he explained the invisible presence to him, warning him to be on his guard. Oh, but I'm a friend. Vivian Gray, kidnapped from Earth just like you, came quick explanation out of the air. Xantra stole me from Cape Cod, where I was vacationing, about the time he took you. Xantra is the one whose spaceship we are on. He looks much like a man. He is some kind of a man. But he's not from Earth. You've seen him? interrupted Clee beginning to believe the voice a little. Yes, came the instant response. Not when he abducted me. He had made himself invisible for that, but always after. Haven't you yet? And then, without waiting for his answer, she gave it herself. But of course you couldn't see him if he's already given you the universal atomic rhythm the slaves have. You'd then be able to see only each other, and the other slaves, not Xantra, not me. I think he makes his slaves that way for protection, she explained. They can't very well plot or rebel against him when they can't even see him, and never know but that he's around. Who are these slaves you keep mentioning, Jim broke in? How many of them are there on this ship, and how many like Xantra? Xantra is the only one of his kind, came the answer. The slaves are a race of inferior people found on his planet, wherever that is. I couldn't understand from his explanation just where. They're creatures much like ugly human beings with a touch of the ape, and are entirely bald, very strong, and not very intelligent. There are seven or eight on board. Normally they're good-natured, but sometimes when they've had a hard master like Xantra, they take to hating him, and when they do that, they can be very fierce and treacherous. That's the main reason for Xantra's stopping at Earth, to see what kind of slaves we humans will make. He is hoping that we will be more intelligent than those he has, and more docile, and safer to have around. Well, snorted Jim belligerently, if Mr. Xantra thinks that I'm going to be safe to have around, he's a lot dumber than I am. Oh, it's good to hear you talk that way, the girl's voice went on. We three have got to stick together and find some way to escape. I've so much to say, she went on, but I don't stay long for fear of getting caught. What you said is where my chief hope lies, 
Sancho doesn't realize how intelligent we are and how dangerous, and we mustn't let him know. I think he believes we are much like his present slaves. He gets away with murder with them. You've noticed the lumps on the back of your necks? Well, they have them too. It's something that's attached to the spinal cord and gives him telepathic control over them. Also the power to hurt them dreadfully, as you've unfortunately found out. His slaves don't understand these lumps. They don't seem to know that he would lose control if they could only in some way get rid of the things in their necks. For the first time since the girl started talking, Clee spoke. His voice was low and grave, and there was a tinge of suspicion in it. Just how does it happen, he asked, that you know so much about things here? The girl's voice broke as she gave her answer. I'm ashamed to tell you, she said. Sancho, he, he admires me as a healthy animal, one close in species to himself. He thinks by being nice to me that he might be able to make me a willing companion to share his trip. For a moment the girl was silent, and when she spoke again, there was a hard note in her voice. I let him have hopes, she said, deliberately. I planned to make him trust me, and give me the run of the ship, so I could find out all I could. So far, before you came, I saw no slightest hope of ever escaping back to earth, but I had at least to look for a quick, sure way to death, in case, in case... You and us too, exclaimed Clee impulsively. No Earthman, no American at least, is ever going to submit to slavery. If the worst comes to the worst, we'll at least die together, Vivian, Jim added soberly. And perhaps, if we do, no one from Xantra's planet will ever come to Earth looking for docile slaves. For a moment, everyone was silent, affected by the thought behind what they had said. Then the girl's voice suggested, with a touch of earth formality that was almost ludicrous under the circumstances, but you two men have not yet introduced yourselves. Both Clee and Jim smiled and told her their names, and in the slightest pause that followed, Clee said awkwardly, almost shyly, Miss Gray, we don't know what's in store for us here, and it, it's possible that we may never know each other any better. So would you, I mean, I wonder, would you mind if I reached out and touched you? In spite of all we have said, I I can hardly realize that you are there, somewhere before me. Out of the nothingness came an impulsive soft hand that closed over his. There was both a smile and something deeper in Vivian's voice as she said, Here, and raised his hand until it touched her brow and the thick, smooth hair of her head. Then she placed it a little lower, over her face, and gently, Clee's fingers told him what his eyes could not read. In case you never see me, why, I, I'd like you to know that I'm really not bad-looking, she said. And Clee knew she was blushing, as he smiled at the eternal feminine in her. But the smile suddenly left his face. His hand felt her give a distinct start, then... He's calling, she gasped faintly. Sancho's calling for me to come to him. Her voice as she spoke moved, and Clean knew she was going towards the door. No, he cried impulsively. Don't risk it. Stay here, and we'll begin our fight against him right now. I will be safe, came Vivian's reassuring voice from the door. I can manage him a while yet. 
Her further words came with a rush. But I wanted to tell you, I had a faint plan. If I could get hold of the anaesthetic, that vial of stuff that smells like cloves. The door was closing now, and the two men knew she was moving down the corridor. They listened in vain for her to complete what she had been saying. Just before the door clicked shut, Jim jammed his foot in it, preventing it from closing. Gee, that girl has courage, Clee murmured. For a moment, the two men looked at each other. Jim was thinking about the open door, and the chance they had to get out. Clee's mind was on something else. Well, Jim, he said, you and I have a nasty job ahead. Jim looked at Clee wonderingly as he took out his pipe and stuck it in the crack of the door, allowing him to remove his foot. Clee explained to him what Xantra had told him with the thought-sending helmets, reminded him of what they had learned from Vivian about the lumps on their necks. After he had finished, he said quietly but decisively, Now, we're going to try and remove whatever it is under these lumps. Have you got anything sharp? Your knife? Something with an edge on it? It would mean escape from the domination of Xantra's will, from his terrible stabbing punishment, if they could remove them. Jim breathed a little quicker in his excitement. But once we do, if we can do it, it'll mean that we'll have to make our break to escape right away, he reminded Clee. We'll be caught if Xantra wills us to come to him and we don't appear. You know what will happen to Vivian if we delay the attempt, Clee reminded him levelly. Jim knew that Clee was right, that their break for freedom must start right then and there. He looked through his pockets and produced some cigarettes, matches, a pipe, a nail file and some utterly useless odds and ends. Clee's hands came out of his pockets empty. I've got nothing at all, he said, and picked up the nail file and looked at it questioningly. We'll have to use this, I guess. Well, I'm first. He lay down on the floor and loosened his collar. Quietly he made several suggestions. Light a match and heat the tip in the flame, he said. The point's pretty dull, but cut as deep and quick and clean as you can. If I yell, pay no attention. I'll try to hold still. Unless it bleeds very much, best not make a bandage. We've nothing clean enough. That was all he said, and Jim, his heart beating like mad and a lump in his throat, could find no words at all. He sterilized the tip of the file as directed, studied the lump a moment, then... After a rough, affectionate shake of his friend's shoulder, he knelt close to his task. One quick, hard cut. A sharp gasp from Clee. A repetition. Then two more times crossways. And a firm, sponge-like metallic disc lay revealed. Then the worst. Raising it a little and breaking the several fine wires that led from it through the flesh within, Clee lay panting, the sweat running down the deep wrinkles of pain on his face. Dark blood oozed from the jagged wound, but he smiled a little, and some of the pain wrinkles in his face smoothed away when Jim showed him the disc. For a short time Clee rested, quieting in his nerves, while Jim staunched the flow of blood. And then it was Jim's turn, and he bore the sharp agony as stoically as Clee. It was perhaps a strange thing, but at this great moment in the lives of the two men they felt no need to talk. For the few minutes they rested after they had done, no word was spoken, but in that time a bond of friendship was formed that only death could ever break. They did not rest long. 
Every moment brought them nearer to the inevitable discovery of what they had done. Their muscles were still quivering. Their wounds on their necks were still slowly bleeding when Clee rose and aroused Jim. The most dangerous, desperate part of their wild revolt lay just ahead. They were able to make but the vaguest of plans, not knowing what to anticipate outside. They only knew that they would first have to strike boldly for possession of the control alcove, which without doubt meant that they would have somehow to kill Xantra, to find and kill a man they could not see, yet who could see them? An enormous task, and only the first of several. For a moment, realizing this, they hesitated at the door, but the die had been cast. There was nothing for them to do but go forward. And quickly. So, giving Jim a final warning that they must stick together, Clee opened wide the door and stepped out into the corridor. What he saw there halted him in his tracks. The slaves! gasped Jim, and involuntarily both Earthmen backed into the room again. The creatures they had seen at once followed them inside. There were four of them. As tall as men, they were, and the general cast of their bodies was identical. But they were different in shocking little details. Their heads were much larger, and in the shape of inverted pears, like those of hydrocephalix, their eyes popped and dull. The thin lips beneath their stubs of noses were ever writhing and twisting in horrible grimaces, and worse, their skins were sickly white and were absolutely bald of hair. The only clothes they were were loincloths and very large sandals, which exposed to full view their chunky muscular bodies. All this the two men took in at a glance. They knew they could never hope to cope unarmed with four such creatures as these, so they stood with their backs to the wall, alertly awaiting their first move. Easy, warned Clee. They're probably only coming to take us in hand, as Vivian said. End of section 12